This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. I'm your host, Ryan Jury. We are about to explore practical solutions and hear about how out-of-reach results are obtained. What is your philosophy on leadership? How do you inspire your team to do their best? By example. I've always thought to lead by example, sir. Well, that is right. That is exactly right. But how to get them to be better than they think they can be? That is very difficult, I find. Leadership. Yes, we are now moving into the leadership series of the Coleman Innovation Podcast. My name is Amanda Laramie, and I am excited to host this portion of the podcast program. Okay, a little about me. I respond to strong leadership. This series came out of requests from other health center organizations who wanted to hear directly from the leaders themselves. These next episodes will be interviews with managers, COOs, CMOs, and CEOs who all led dramatic change efforts at their sites. This week, we interview CEO of Access Community Health Network, Donna Thompson. Donna had so much great advice when we interviewed her, we actually made her interview a two-parter. This week, we hear about leading sustainable change, and next time, we'll hear about the innovations that Donna and her team are testing now. Let's dive right in. Donna, tell us about you and your role and how long you've been at Access. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited about the Coleman podcast. I've been at Access since 1995, and actually, I was only going to stay two years, maybe three. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, but um, my background, I'm a nurse. I'm a pediatric nurse, PEDS, PEDS ICU, NICU. I did a lot of transport. And so when um, I had the opportunity to go into community health, it was really a curiosity, and I was only going to stay two or three years. Um, this was during a time I was trying to build my resume. Mm-hmm. Um, and ambulatory care was hot area. And since most of my experience was inpatient, I thought I could try ambulatory. But little did I know, this isn't hospital ambulatory. Community health centers, it's about a movement. Mm. It's about a movement looking at communities and populations that have been disenfranchised and many times have suffered in silence. Okay. And so this was back in the late 90s that you started? Middle 90s, 1995. Absolutely. And how many health centers did Access have then? When I started, we had nine health centers. Um, Three were school-based. Most of them were concentrated on the west side and south sides of Chicago. No infrastructure. Mm. Um, You know, we also weren't good at collecting our own data. Mm. And even during that time, even the data that we did have, I remember many times practitioners and um, our, our team at the clinics didn't believe the data. (laughs) So fast forward to now, how many health centers does Access have now? So now we have 35. Wow. And it's not about the number. I always Mm -hmm. tell people it really is about 
are you measuring your impact? Mm. And within our scope, we have about 175,000 unduplicated patients. Uh, We're not only in inner city Chicago, but we're in suburban Cook, as well as DePage County. And the interesting piece is DePage County is one of the wealthiest counties in the nation, but at the same time, um, their uninsured rate um, and um, those on Medicaid have uh, drastically increased over the last 15 years. And tell us how you first met Coleman Associates, how you started working <laughs> with us. What, what, when did you, Absolutely. how did you meet us? When did you start? Absolutely. Absolutely. We had to look at how well we were doing logistically in running our health centers. And we knew that depending on the day in the health center, um, our um, no-show rates could be as high as 40%. Mm. Um trying to get in to see your provider when the patient wanted to could be three, four weeks out. Mm. And our cycle time could be as high as 110 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so as we looked at investing in an EHR system and really getting on a platform of consistency, we knew also we had missed opportunities just on how we were structured. Also, it was getting obvious that the Affordable Care Act would come into play. And as I told the teams, I said, we've got a long history of being in the communities and we've got a strong mission. But guess what, folks? Now more and more patients will have choice. And from a business perspective, we've got to make sure that the choice is us. Well, and Donna, I'm impressed. So you can rattle off your um, metrics, your measures that you're using to measure operational performance. Did you know back then about your cycle time? Like you said, a cycle time of 110 minutes. Is that something you were aware of before you started work with Coleman? You know, the interesting um, aspect and when I would um, make rounds and talk to our staff, um, our language. We utilize different language Mm -hmm. for the same thing. And so there was a lot of misalignment, miscommunication. And it also came down to how we were even doing our EHR builds because we weren't defining what we were trying to capture. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the pleasures of working with Coleman is that not only did we engage our clinical staff, but our first meeting, our first kickoff was really leaders from across the organization. So whether it was the revenue cycle people, the mm-hmm. grants management folks, the clinical folks, um, we brought everybody under one tent. Um, and it was interesting because we also addressed it as a key business meeting, meaning that as um, I talked about um, what's going to be happening over the next few years, the Affordable Care Act, you know, millions of people will now get insurance. Um, millions more will have more opportunity to navigate where they want that choice to be. And what would it look like if the choice wasn't us? But we also had our finance people in to really do a back of an envelope to say, 
if we keep doing what we're doing, not only are we really losing millions of dollars in opportunity, but why would um, a consumer select us? And so through this um, dynamic process, we simplified it to three key areas. And I think for any leader, and when we talk about alignment, it really is what are going to be those key measures that you're going to have everyone get behind. Mm. And that's how you picked cycle time, no show rate. And third next available appointments. Um, You know, the exciting piece also is that um, there was a lot of behind the scenes work because a lot of our staff didn't understand how to do measures Mm -hmm. um, and even um, to understand their baseline. We found out some of our staff, math wasn't their best friend. Uh And so we had to do a lot of education behind that. But we also through the through the process, this wasn't a top-down management process. You know, the one um, pieces of joy that I have is that we discovered new leaders and that through this process, um, it really is about influence. It's about champion. It's about understanding the mission and getting at the heart, but it's also about creativity um, and also having some bragging rights (laughs) and stealing some of those best ideas, those best concepts. Well, and speaking of, since this is the innovation podcast, I was part of your collaborative and one of my favorite memories is the innovation when your teams got those little video cameras and started recording um, what they were trying, how it was affecting patients, and then they'd send it in and then another team would feel competitive and record a video. Do you remember those? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you know, um, one of the things that I I really also um, recommend about any type of what I call uh, journey that you go on with your organization. Um, this isn't a handoff to the CMO or to the clinical people who are running operations. This is everyone all in. You know, I often shared the story that as we were going through the process, historically or initially, um, I think um, Coleman was going to support us on eight or nine health centers. Mm -hmm. And then I can remember at one of our um, training exercises, um, I whispered over to the COO and said, what's the next steps? And she looked at me and I said, I don't think we can do this by ourselves. I don't think this is the train, the trainer. And we really reevaluated um, our commitment and said, no, we need the, um, the strength of the experts coming in and also giving every health center that same advantage, those same warm touches that Coleman was able to do. And, um, and then also um, as we got to the end, because we were very strategic starting with the larger health centers Mm -hmm. in the midsize. But when we got to the last, I think, six or eight health centers that were uh, the smaller health centers, we had to make a decision to close those health centers so that they could have the same eight hours of initial training, the launching. Um, That was also a year where our financials did not look good. Mm. And I can remember coming from a meeting with my CFO and it was like, you know, another bad month. 
and walking in and I knew that day there were eight health centers that were closed. And I remember going, mm, but you know what? I put on some more lipstick. I put a <laughs> smile on my face because it was really about the long game. Well, I was going to say, did that pay off? Yes, it, it paid okay. off. It's about the long game. And it's about understanding that when you make these investments, um, sometimes you can't predict as you're navigating uh, what might get in front of you. But the worst thing a leader can do is pull it. Um, it is really gritting your teeth and powering through. And I think that's one of the things I will never regret that from the first health center to the last, they had that same touch um, and that same launch. And again, I think over time, um, that has served us well. Mm. And so I imagine some people would look at that and say, well, how, how did you measure your return on investment from closing all those health centers and putting all these teams through these multiple days of eight-hour trainings? Where did you see the return on investment? Great question. So one, um, part of this whole evolution is that over time, and I can remember when we would have breakout sessions um, throughout, you know, what I call those kind of mini touch points. Um, I can remember Amanda, uh, we would do group exercises and they would have storyboards. Mm -hmm. And I can remember one or two managers that I knew um, were what I call outside the circle of love. They were not adding value. Mm -hmm. And again, when I talk about the need that when you make these changes, your leaders have to also change because we were really now supporting a process that wasn't a top down, but it really incorporated different skills that needed, leaders needed to bring to the table. Now, we were investing in those, but we could tell early on that some leaders just weren't buying in. Mm. Conversely, we had people who were in staff positions that over the years, they have emerged as some of our top leaders from just the activities of understanding engagement, understanding how to take people through change. These are what leaders need um, to have as part of their own toolkits if they're going to be successful in leading teams and also leading diverse teams. Mm. And did you see, so I'm hearing from that, you had some results that were emerging leaders, um, maybe moving people to get more training in areas where they weren't strong or moving them out of those positions. I think Jim Collins calls it like getting people on the right seats of the bus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Patient satisfaction. Oh my gosh. Um, I think Part of the the big joy was when um, we would hear staff say, you know, some of our patients would literally say, you know, I came and brought a book almost as thick as Gone with the Wind um, because my wait times were so long. And now as they were checking in before they could even sit down good, they were being called to now um, start really their, their, um, their cycle and, um, get in to see their provider. One of the things I will say is through this process, we also were very, um, prescriptive on what needed to be protected. The time with the provider was always going to be protected. Mm. And we knew that was anywhere between 15 and 17 minutes as we have evolved, because again, this was really, 
um, you know, um, four, three or four years ago, as we've evolved, we create, we've created huddle boards. Mm. And so now every day, um, and some of the sites, even twice a day, they will have team huddles. And so not only will they have their DPI metrics, but now as they're getting into schedule utilization, as they're getting into closing the care gaps, we're now pulling together information. So it's not just the logistics of how well people can get in and go through the system, but also intentionality. Are we closing those care gaps and having missed opportunities? So, so let me ask you then now, you know, we started this with you, I think, back in 2013, I think is when we collected your baseline data. <laughs> so now, over six years later, um, where are you on no-show rate, cycle time, and third next available? So um, in 2013, when we first got all under the tent, we had a cross-section of leaders. Um very audacious with the goals. So we said at the time, our goal for cycle time was 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, To date, we're averaging 37, 38 minutes. Wow. Um, Again, some of our sites are are right at 30. Um, Some some a little bit, but again, 38 minutes. And that's down from 110. I went back and checked your data. So that's pretty impressive. Our third next available, um, the goal was zero. We're at three days for OB and two days for primary care. Wow. And I think I have that's down from 10 and a half days when you yes, started. Absolutely. No show rate. Um, the goal was 5% or less. Mm-hmm. And we're at 17%. You've clearly kept them up. If your cycle times are 37, 38 minutes down from 110, your third next available is low. Your no show rate, which is 17%, it still started at 24 from the mm-hmm. data I had. Um If you were to talk to other CEOs, other CMOs, other leaders who are leading a transformation effort, what is your advice for keeping this up six, 10 years down the line? Absolutely. Well, first of all, the commitment has to come from the C-suite. As I said earlier, this isn't something that just the clinical people worry about. Um, also there's got to be board engagement, Okay, you know, community health centers, half of our board are our actual payments right. patients. So they have to understand. And, you know, one of the things that I listen for in our board meetings is, you know, from our patients, um, our, our, our consumer members, what is their experience? Are they seeing, um, something positive? Mm-hmm. But even aside from that, um, I see my role as a major cheerleader. Okay. Um, Every opportunity, whether it's all staff breakfast, my CEO huddle, um, to even when I'm making rounds, um, you're always inquiring about it, keeping it at top of mind, um, cheering those um, sites and departments where they've made strides using some of the tools we learned earlier, you know, like, hey, this health center over here, go steal their idea Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or Um, Are there things we can do with our infrastructure, like try a system-wide transportation livery system? Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea is it never leaves top of mind. It's Mm -hmm. always part of our strategies. It's always something that we're accountable to report on at every level. And again, it takes the CEO and the C-suite 
continue to keep that top of mind, discussing it at all levels. What are some of the key lessons learned from going through a transformation effort? Like if you have to go back and think when you were in the thick of it, were there any mistakes you think you all made? If so, how can you help others not make those same mistakes? So lessons learned. Number one, um, it's a journey and everyone is going to go at different paces. I can remember that even though we put all health centers through the same rigor, the same initial education, we still had two or three health centers that we had to go back and reeducate. Mm. And we championed and did not make those folks feel like less than. We really positioned it so that it was a number, uh, you know, an, another opportunity. The other thing is um, we found out that our, a lot of our staff, when it came to things like um, calculating their measurements, they didn't have the skills. Mm. And so, again, um, we slowed things down and to really make sure that then we invested in their skill set to understand, you know, how to calculate um, and to make sure we didn't leave anyone behind. So I think, again, it's the ability to take the temperature, modulate the process, and during the whole process, making sure that everyone feels good. Even one thing you said about making sure everyone had the skills to calculate the data, that the way you said that is really important because I've heard a lot of organizations who said, oh, no, no, we're just going to automate it. Like, no, no, you don't have to do the data. It's too hard. But so tell me in your own words, why do you think it's important that someone can calculate their own data? Well, one, you want the teams to own it. Yeah. And when you're starting out on a process like this, number one, they have to have faith in the numbers and they also have to have an understanding of what was put in the formula to get to the calculation. If that's done for them or something is kind of like almost spit out, um, there's all of these other questions of, is that truly my data? How mm -hmm. real is the data? Um, who is that person behind the, the curtain that's giving me this information? And one of the things that we saw is that because they were able to calculate their own data, they owned it. And as they owned it, then they got more innovative with coming up with solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as I remember, your organization even was quite competitive when it came Ab to sharing data <laughs> from their health centers. And, you know, um, they still are. are they? And I think that's one of the reasons why at our CEO huddle, where, you know, I kind of get on the horn three, three times a day on um, every six weeks, people said, do you record? I go, no, you know, I, I get on the horn, it's live, it's me. But the reality is I do shout outs also. Because mm -hmm. I think, again, um, competition's good. Uh -huh. And um, I think, again, having a competitive nature gets people to understand, you know, let me pick up the phone and find out why is Betsy at the top of the heap. Mm. Um, and I also encourage that. I'll say, you know, you know, if I were you guys, I'd call Letitia because these sites, you know, or this particular site is really knocking it out of the ballpark because we really want people to understand they're not there by themselves. 
also understand that there are um, centers within their system that are knocking it out of the ballpark, but go ahead, spend a day, steal that idea, um, you know, um, look outside of yourself for a solution. Um, the other piece, and I, I talked about this before, when you're going on a journey of transformation, you're really also looking at how you've always done your work and how you've always led. And when we went through this transformation, new skill sets were needed by mm-hmm. leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to understand how to let go, how to support teams. But at the same time, it was not a command and control. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, how to really start integrating new language and more of a systematic process. Our schedules are not static. Mm -hmm. And so understanding the new language and understanding how to really make sure that people are still utilizing that new process, even though it's several years later, Mm -hmm. that's also what leaders need to pay attention to. Mm. And then I think lastly, um, you've got to make it fun, but you also have to hold people accountable. And so I never stop um, talking about DPI, I never talk, stop talking about where we're at, but guess what? I never stop talking about the goals. Mm. And so every time I talk about DPI, I just don't talk about, oh, where we're at at 17% or three or two days or 38 minutes. I always put that in perspective, but hey, folks, the goal still is. And again, over the years, people have said, well, maybe we need to change the goal. I said, no, we will not change the goal. Um, And again, that keeps everyone focused. And at the same time, when I talk about these measures, that's a blend of the system. We have Mm -hmm. people that are shooting it out of the ballpark and we have people that, again, depending on what's going on, um, they might be straggling. But the goal has remained the goal. The goal remains the goal. I think Donna's wisdom about constantly sharing the goals and making sure that staff really own their data is such strong advice for any organization undergoing dramatic change. Next time, we hear about Access Community Health's innovations in care coordination, as well as new transportation initiatives to get high-risk patients to their appointments. You don't want to miss it. I want to say a big thank you to Donna Thompson for joining us on our podcast and for being such a wonderful partner. I also want to thank Jonathan at Bionic Squid and Ryan Jury for all of their help producing this podcast. Ryan, thanks for leading the way. The clips you heard at the beginning are credited to Invictus, the movie from Warner Brothers, and NBC's The Office. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear our next installment from Donna Thompson.